0: So as we get started this morning, I just have to be honest with you up front, this is a very difficult passage, especially the verse in particular that we're going to look at. If you received a copy of the bulletin, uh, this program that you might have got as we came in, if you want to turn it over on the back, I've tried to pack in uh, as many notes as I could that would be helpful for you, but what we're going to do this morning is we 're first going to try to untangle verse 30, because verse 30 has a couple of phrases that are just very hard to see what's going on there we 're going to untangle verse 30, and then we want to understand what do verses 30 and 31 say to us about how we 're to live our lives and how we 're to understand our relationship with God and our place in this world. This speech that Paul gives on Mars Hill here in Athens, the center of learning and architecture and culture, as he goes in and he speaks to these philosophers and the people there. The speech that he gives, there's kind of two options for making, making sense of it. It's, it's tough in life when you're faced with two options and you're not sure how to uh, navigate between the two and you're trying to figure out how to pick. Uh, my wife, she worked at a camp in college. Uh, she could live at camp. She loves camp. She is all about camp. I don't like camp very much, <laughs> I like camp if I was by myself, camping. It was just me, I might like camp then. Uh, Camp was not always my favorite thing, this is just not my particular personality, but Amanda lived for camp, she was made made for camp. Um, And she would play a game with some of her campers at camp called Would You Rather. Uh, You guys have probably played versions of Would You Rather, like would you rather slide down a cheese grater or swim through a pool of spoiled milk. You know, something like that. And every eighth grader thinks it's like, it was really awesome. Like, oh man, which option would I pick if I had to pick between, between the two? It stinks in life when you're put in a situation, and you have to pick between two options, especially when you're trying hard to make sense of, of the options. This speech here that Paul gives in Athens, there are two main ways of trying to make sense of it. And I think we can pick some from both options, but one definitely wins the day. The first option is that Paul is coming into Athens to a city that's very religious, a city that's full of idols, a city that has some understanding about a God that might be out there, even to the point of there might be an unknown God, so they make an additional altar. And the first option for understanding Paul's speech here is that he's coming to them, and mainly what he needs to do is give them some more information. If they had some more knowledge— added to the knowledge that they already have, it would move them toward worship of God. The second option for understanding Paul's speech is he comes into a very religious context, but the people's main need is not more knowledge. Their main need is repentance, conversion. They're following a false god. The first option, they need some more knowledge so that they'll be able to worship the God that they're already moving toward, the second option is they're worshiping false gods, and what they most need is repentance so that they would turn and worship the maker of heaven and earth. Now, from the first option, it is true that they were a religious people and that they had ideas about God and that Paul was coming to them to help them understand who God really is. But just like us, the people in Athens, their main need was not more knowledge. Their main need was salvation, was conversion, was repentance, turning away from the false God they were worshiping and turning to the one true God. I love learning. I love books. I went to school until they told me, you're finished, you can't go anymore, you have to stop. I love that. I want us to understand God's word. But when we move away from God's design, when we sin and that leads to brokenness, in our brokenness, our greatest need is not more knowledge. When we think about being made right with God, people who, and you may be here this morning saying, you know what, I'm really interested in Christianity. I'm really interested in being a religious person. I'm trying to seek this out. If I just had some more information, then I would probably follow Jesus. Let me say, that you're in exactly the right place, seeking after the things of the Lord, seeking to know the Lord. But let me make a small correction if that's your thinking, or just offer another idea. Your greatest need this morning is not more information. It's not that if you had two more facts about Jesus, then all your questions would be answered, and then you would turn to him. Because what we find is our greatest need is not more information, our greatest need is repentance that we realize that we are not right with God, and it's only when we turn and seek after him that we find what worship really looks like, that we find what life really looks like. And you might say, man, that is harsh. You don't know these people. You don't know me. How, how, can, you, how can you say that? Look at verse 30, which admittedly we're going to come at humbly because it's got a couple of phrases here that are really hard to make sense of. Verse 30. Verse 30. The times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So Paul's just presented to them that God is creator. That this God, the unknown God they wanted to know is actually the creator. And he says that the times of ignorance, this God overlooked. Two phrases here that are really hard to make sense of. What does it mean, times of ignorance? And what does it mean, God overlooked? We're going to take them one at a time. The first is try to understand what does it mean there when it says times of ignorance. If you're reading now the New International Version, it'll say such ignorance. Um, That's okay, except the word times there is is pretty important because it's periods of ignorance. It's a series of time in which they were facing this idea of ignorance. But what do we mean by ignorance in this sense. What is is Paul getting at? When you run into a word in scripture and you're trying to learn more about it, one of the interesting things you can do is you can do a word study to try to look in scripture and make sense of what does this word mean. You've got to be careful when you do that because words always have meaning in what we call context. You want to understand the series the story in which they're used in order to understand what that word really is. But another way you can do a word study is you begin to look at other places in Scripture where that word is used. You have to be cautious when you do this, but it's a really good way to get a picture in Scripture of what words mean and how they're used. And so what I want to do with this word ignorance is it's not used very many times in the New Testament, but I want to show you a couple of the places that it's used. Acts chapter 3 Acts chapter three, and it's always good if you can find another instance in the same book where the word is used because it'll help us make sense. Acts chapter three, verse 17. This is a speech that Peter is giving to a Jewish audience. The reason this matters is because Acts chapter 17, which we read earlier, is Paul speaking to a Gentile, a non-Jewish audience, but we find the same word used by Peter in reference to a Jewish audience, and he says in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. What Peter is referencing here is he's referencing the crucifixion of Jesus, and he's saying that when the people did not understand who Jesus was, when they didn't comprehend what Jesus had come to do, and they rebelled against him, ultimately leading to his crucifixion, Peter said they acted in ignorance. So we know in the book of Acts that the word ignorance has something to do with not recognizing who Jesus is and what he's come to do. The word ignorance is also used in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 Ephesians is a book that Paul used, but Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So what we find in Ephesians 4 is there's something about the concept of ignorance that we're living apart from the life that God would have us live, that we're hard in our heart. It even says earlier in that verse, the futility of their minds. They're trying to seek after, they're trying to know, but they're living apart from the will of God. At this point, you need to make a note or on your bulletin circle, the Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 There's so much that you could unpack in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. We're not going to look at it in depth this morning. But when you read Ephesians 4, we're swimming in the same water of of Romans chapter 1 that we've suppressed the truth of God. And as we suppress the truth of God, as we we fail to worship Him how He's supposed to be worshipped, it leads us not just to wrong thinking, but here's the point, it leads us to wrong living. First Peter, you find this same idea showing up again. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, Peter's speaking to the audience there. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So when you try to put these pieces together, you find out, with this concept of ignorance that it's failing to recognize who Jesus is and what he's all about and because of the failure to know God rightly it leads to living that's opposed to God's way it leads to living that's opposed to God's character so when we live in ignorance it's not that we just don't know something it's that we fail to live the life that God has created us to live but what does it mean by the times of ignorance I think there's a A key here and this this was really helpful to me this past week and and I hope it would kind of make the fog swim away a little bit but there's a phrase in the New Testament that's called the mystery of Christ you find this a couple of different places but one of the places you find the mystery of Christ reference is in Ephesians chapter 3 Ephesians chapter 3 Paul is talking about this idea and he says in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 4 When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And look at this next phrase, because this is where the fog starts to move away a little bit. Into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Paul is talking about something that was not known previously, the mystery of Christ, but now... It has been revealed. This mystery, what is this mystery of Christ? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, times of ignorance times separated from knowing the mystery of Christ, they didn't realize that the Gentiles were equally included in God's plans, equally included in God's people. Gentiles just means those who are not Jews, that they're included, and the way that they're included is through Jesus Christ. So when you get back to Acts chapter 17, and he talks about the times of ignorance, Almost certainly what he's referencing in Acts chapter 17 is the times before the mystery of Christ was revealed. The time before Jesus came and made known God's plan, made known God's character, made known God's salvation. That is what's referenced by the times of ignorance. But if you go back to Acts chapter 17 or you look up on the screen, it's not just that there was times of ignorance, but it says the times of ignorance God overlooked. If you're reading from the King James Version, and I've already said something halfway negative about the New International Version, so just this kind of balances it out. I think the King James Version is a wonderful version. If that is, people ask me all the time, what version of the Bible should I use? The one you read should be the one that you use. Like if you read it and you understand it and you can understand the King James Version, more power to you and go for it. There's, it's a version that's been used for so long and has ministered to so many people. It's not the only version and it's not the only Bible because there are times that it, it could be done in different ways. So don't hear me saying anything negative if you read the King James, but there's a problem that we run into here. If you're reading from the King James Version in this verse, it doesn't say God overlooked. It says God winked at. Wink, W-I-N-K-E-D. God winked at these times of ignorance. Now, I think I know what the King James is going for there, but the problem is that when I hear the phrase winked at, it either makes me think that God took it lightly, like you're trying to be the cool dad and your kid does something wrong at the park. And everybody, you know, thinks, man, that dad should probably get onto the kid. And the dad just kind of winks at the kid like, hey, I saw you. I did that when I was a kid. No big deal. Just go on. Not that I know that from experience. I would never do that. I was just using an illustration of what it would look like. Or, or winked at, I don't know, it just it doesn't give off the, the right idea because it makes it sound like God overlooked, God winked at, God took lightly the times of ignorance. But this word overlooked, we don't want to think about it in the sense that God took lightly. It doesn't mean that God indulged their ignorance. God said do whatever you want to, it doesn't matter. The word overlooked in Acts chapter 17, it's the only place it's used in the entire New Testament. So you're kind of stuck if you're doing a word study. That's the only option you have in the whole New Testament. But there's a synonym and because all of our kids and teenagers here love school, they know exactly what a synonym is. And it's a word that is very similar in meaning to the other word that's used. There's a synonym in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And Justin read this verse for us earlier at the beginning of, of the service. What does it mean that God overlooked? In Romans chapter 3, Speaking about Jesus' coming, his death for us, it says, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. That phrase, passed over, is a synonym. It's very similar in meaning and very similar in construction to the word overlooked in Acts chapter 17. God passed over former sins. Why did he do that? It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So back in Acts chapter 17, when it says that God overlooked times of ignorance, what it means is that when people, and you see this in the Old Testament as sin begins to run rampant and people rebel against him, God does not bring immediate judgment. On the people. And one of the themes that you see throughout the Old Testament is people are crying out to God saying, God, don't you see people rebelling against you? Don't you see the sin in the world? Don't you see the destruction of the world? When, God, are you going to do something about this? There's this theme of they want God to be just. They want God to respond to the sin and the rebellion of the world. They're calling out for that to happen. But it says that God overlooked times of ignorance, because then, and this verse isn't up on the screen, but it helps us make sense of it, Galatians 4.4 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There was a time when God overlooked ignorance. He didn't bring immediate judgment, nor did he bring immediate salvation, but all of that was to prepare for the time when he would bring judgment and when he would bring salvation and it would come through jesus christ so when you hear times of ignorance and you see the word ignorance and you think about the people in athens hear me out on this ignorance does not equal innocence ignorance according to scripture does not equal innocence because this is the way we have to pull this out is ignorance It's not just I didn't know enough, it's that I had rebelled against God in sin and I was separated from him and I needed to know how to be made right with him. This answers, or at least helps to answer, one of the most difficult questions we face in Christianity, which is the famous question about what about the people in the faraway jungle who have never heard about Jesus? What about their standing before God? That is a question that kind of hits us in the gut, and if I was just to give a simplistic answer, I feel like I wouldn't do the question justice, but here's what we have to think about. If we're not careful, we lapse into this noble savage or innocent savage, old-school mentality that those people are separated from civilization, they're living in a way of purity, and if we just leave them alone, it would all be better, but that's not the message you find in Scripture. What you find in Scripture is Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when Paul comes to Athens, he doesn't tell them, Hey, just continue to worship the gods you're already worshiping. He comes to them and says, No, the God that you're worshiping, I've come to proclaim to you so that you would repent and turn to him. And so it's not, if ignorance equaled innocence... The worst thing we could ever do is go on a mission trip to people who have never known about Jesus. Because in their ignorance, they were innocent before the Lord, and then we came to them and told them about Jesus, and now all of a sudden they're guilty. Great job, mission trip. You came, and they were fine before you got there. They were okay before God, but you came and told them about Jesus, and now they're guilty. Except that's not what you find in Scripture. What you find is that because of sin, because of a rebellion against God, We're all guilty before him. Whether you grew up in the Bible Belt or whether you grew up in the heart of the jungle somewhere, we are all guilty of rebellion against God. And yet, it would be, and yes, it would be a very sad story if it ended there. But thanks be to God, it doesn't end there. You go back to Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, on your notes, three things that we learn from these verses about how God relates to us. Number one, God will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus. This is not an easy topic to talk about. It's not a fun or popular topic to talk about. But the reality is that Scripture is clear that God brings righteous judgment against sinners. Those who have practiced idolatry, who have worshiped a God other than Him, those who have rebelled against Him and His ways, all people everywhere under judgment because of sin i don't have an illustration i don't have a joke that's just it that's just the reality that god righteously judges sin and part of that judgment is brokenness that we live in a world that is groaning under suffering and pain and the reality of death and sin Not that every sickness and every death is immediately linked to a particular sin. Not saying that at all. We just live in a world that is fallen, that's broken, that feels every day the curse of sin around it. I don't need to tell you that because you can either turn on the news or you can just look at your own life and realize that that is there. And moreover, it's brokenness and the wages of sin is death and the result of that is eternal separation from God in hell. And so we've gone from not popular to really not popular and really difficult at this point. Listen to this quote from Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson says, Thus it is in hell, they would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall be always dying, but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, this word ever breaks the heart. God's judgment against sin is certain and God's judgment against sin is righteous. And if it hurts in the pit of your stomach to think about that, it should because that's not someone else's problem. That's every one of our reality. To realize that when we dislike the idea of God's justice, it's because we don't understand the depths of his holiness. We love the idea, and let me just speak for myself here. We all love the idea of God as creator, but we struggle with the idea of God as judge. We want a good God who creates a good world and then everybody can do whatever they want to, but so much inside of us just kind of cringes about the idea of God as judge. But the one who is the good and perfect creator of the world is also the good and righteous and true judge of the world. And he's able to do that because he's all-powerful, all-wise, and always all-righteous. Number two. Thankfully, this is number two. Number two, there is hope for salvation through repentance. It says there in verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is necessary. Repentance is urgent. Repentance is possible for all people. God desires for all people to repent and to be made right with Him. And when this repentance happens, when we turn from sin and we look to God, we find life. Not death, but life. Not brokenness, but healing. Not judgment, but acceptance. Every good thing necessary and possible in life is found when we turn away from sin and we turn to Jesus because he has made all things right with God and he is the one who gives life. He is the one because of whom we are able to stand before the judge. The one who is not only judge but who is father. The one who not only is righteous but is good. There's hope When we repent and we turn to God through Jesus Christ. How is that possible? How can that even be a thing? To use some teenage lingo. How can that even be a thing? It can be a thing because of number three. The resurrection. And if that's not teenage lingo and I just made a fool of myself. Skip it. Go on. God judges sin. There's hope through repentance. Number three. The resurrection of Jesus assures both judgment and salvation. We're going to spend all next week looking at this idea of resurrection and how it pertains to judgment and salvation. But what Paul is doing here in verse 31, he says, He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the assurance that we have that God is just and the assurance that we have that God is able and willing to save both come because of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was God's way of saying, I'll do what I said I will do, and I'm able to do what I said I will do. It assures us of God's power and God's truth. Because of the resurrection, we are able to have hope for life. Here's an interesting thing. John 3.16 was probably, if you grew up around church, or maybe if you didn't grow up around church, you just grew up watching sports on TV and some crazy person held up a John 3.16 sign and you were exposed to it that way. John 3.16 is probably one of the most popular verses anywhere in, in the world that people know But usually we stop at John 3.16 and we don't read the verses past John 3.16. What you find out past John 3.16 are these concepts of judgment and salvation coming together. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That encompasses what we've talked about so far. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That word in verse 17, condemn, is the same word for judge that we saw in Acts chapter 17. So if you reread it, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not judged, not condemned, but whoever does not believe is judged, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. When Paul goes into Athens to this place that's full of idols, full of this religious, these religious ideas, he doesn't come saying, hey, let me add another God to the gods that you already have. He doesn't come saying, let me offer a class so you can know more about God. He comes And he says, you know what, in the past, God did not deal immediately with rebellion and sin, but now he has, and he's done so through Jesus Christ. And everyone who turns against him stands under judgment, but he is a good and saving God, and he has made possible a way for salvation. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, you can know that he's able to save, but you can also know that he is righteous to judge. And so it doesn't matter whether you're in first century Athens or 21st century America. The question is, have you repented of sin and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation? If week after week you're saying to yourself, if I just got one more question answered, if I just could learn one more thing, then I would trust in Jesus. What that is, that's a sign that God is deeply at work in your life And the call in your life this morning is to repent. To repent and turn to the God who has made possible life. Life now and life eternal. And we're coming to a time in our service where we're going to celebrate that through the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we're remembering what it is for Jesus to have given himself for us, his body and his blood. I wanted us to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, knowing how much I was struggling with the content of the sermon this morning, knowing how much I was overcome by what we were talking about, and needing to be reminded what it is to celebrate this together as a church, to remember God's work in our life. The Lord's Supper is for those who have repented of sins and trusted in Jesus. If that's not your case this morning, or you have small children with you, and you're investing the gospel in them, and they've not come to a point of repentance, there's no shame at all in just passing the plate to the next person. This is a a reflection of what God has done in our lives. It's a celebration of that. But here's the other thing I want you to think about before we wrap up. The other thing I want you to think about. When we experience the power of salvation, we experience the power of the gospel in our lives, the result of that is we want others to know that we would share that message joyfully and widely with those around us. So here, I want you to do a thought experiment with me before we transition to the Lord's Supper. Do a thought experiment with me. The next time that you're in church, whether it's Emmaus or somewhere else, the next time you're in church celebrating the Lord's Supper, Who do you know that you want to be sitting next to you, celebrating the power of Jesus Christ at work in their life? Someone you know that's separated from God, but you know that God's at work in their life, and you know that the next time you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you want them to be right here with you. And beyond that, Where else in the world might God send us to celebrate the Lord's Supper? What would it look like to gather with a church in another part of the world the first time they ever celebrate the Lord's Supper together, remembering the power of Christ? Where does God want to send us, and who does God want to put next to you the next time we celebrate this as a church? I'm going to pray for us, and after I do, those who are helping with the Lord's Supper, after I pray, if you would make your way to the tables, We're going to disperse the elements. As we do, there's going to be verses on the screen for you to read and reflect on, to remember what it is to experience the power of the gospel at work in your life. I pray that the Lord would use this time in a mighty way in your life. Let's pray as we prepare to respond to God's word. God, I feel intensely overwhelmed by the topic of of scripture this morning, what it is for you to be perfectly holy, for you to be perfectly good, that you are creator and you are judge. And when we take sin lightly, when we struggle with the reality of brokenness and suffering all around us in the world, so often it's because we've forgotten the depth of your holiness and the depth of your goodness. God, would you use your word, would you use the celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning to remind us what it is to be made right with you through Jesus? Thank you, God, for this victory on the cross. Thank you for the wonderful cross, and thank you for the glory of the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.